This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Please note that today's episode of Art Curious contains language discussing violence and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. This episode of Art Curious is brought to you by Anchorlight, home to a 1,500-square-foot, zero-commission gallery providing exhibition opportunities to emerging artists. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. It's one of those ridiculous things where, as a museum curator, I sarcastically sigh wistfully and say, it's a rough life, but someone's got to do it. And that happens when I get the opportunity to travel for my job. And I have been exceedingly lucky in that I've been able to attend the Venice Biennale, one of the best international showcases of art today, multiple times in the past decade. And for many, there's not much better than Venice, Italy. Venice, the floating city, the city of water, the city of masks, has captivated visitors for centuries. Just imagine all those gleaming canals, vibrant palazzos, countless bridges, and domed basilicas that can get even the seasoned traveler's heart all aflutter. But as I noted in episode 17 of the podcast, there is something unnerving about Venice at night. Those blue canals look depthless and dark in the moonlight. The shadows across a bridge and around a tight corner distort something placid into something chilling, even sinister. So it's no surprise that there are popular walking tours dedicated to the dark side of this peerless gem of a city. And they are fun, too. I've even been on one myself. Any city with a history as long and colorful as Venice's will no doubt have a plethora of creepy stories to share. But Venice is already a bit otherworldly during the daytime. At night, it's a whole different ballgame, where one of those gleaming palaces on the Grand Canal feels spookier, grimmer, and its dark windows can force you to take a second glance over your shoulder as your gondola glides silently past. You wonder, perhaps, if keeping your distance is indeed the safest policy. Because that palazzo? It's the most haunted, even cursed, building in Venice proper. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. This season, season nine, is all about curses in fine art and archeology, span a topic that was suggested by you, our listeners. And today we're continuing with a famed building beloved by the rich and famous for hundreds of years, and even inspired some pretty big-name artists. But that is most renowned today for being incredibly cursed, even haunted. Today, we're talking about the terrifying Palazzo Dario on Venice's Grand Canal. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. During the first year of the Art Curious podcast, I really wanted to feature Venice, as I discussed at the top of this episode. 
I eventually ended up taking a lesser-known creepy locale as the main focus of a story, and it had a rather apocryphal story that connected it to a tragedy supposedly befalling an artist who had connections to Renaissance greats like Titian and Giorgione. And it had a little love story thrown in there too, which was also super fun. But I have to admit that I almost toyed with discussing the Palazzo Dario, also known as Ca Dario, all the way back in early 2017. It's been in the back of my mind ever since, so I'm excited to finally share it with you now. Because in my mind, a haunted place in Venice just makes this eternally alluring city even more so. On the surface, there's nothing particularly haunting or terrifying about the Palazzo Dario. It looks, in many ways, like a bunch of the marvelous palazzos that line the Grand Canal, the main waterway that winds through Venice like a highway. It's pretty, actually, all done up in the so-called Venetian Gothic style, a mishmash that combines elements and influences from not only Italy's medieval Gothic period, so think lots of brick and marble construction, and those pointed archways known as lancet arches, but it also smashes together with the characteristics of the architectural styles of both the Byzantine and Ottoman empires, i.e. modern-day Turkey. Like ornamental rooftop crenulation, windows with stone grills, and this beautiful multicolored exterior stonework. In considering Venice's location on the northern Adriatic Sea, and the fact that it was a world center for trade and commerce ever since its earliest days, this confluence of styles actually makes good sense. It's no wonder that many call Venice the crossroads of the world. And its eclectic and one-of-a-kind architecture truly reflected this. And the facade of the Palazzo Dario is an excellent example of this, all color and light, with rows of those long arches lined up together, stretching toward the sky. The arches contrast wonderfully with these round windows, known as oculi, that are scattered across the exterior and are echoed in these wonderful circular ornamental designs, called stone patterns, that were created, at great expense no doubt, in a variety of exotic stones from the Middle East. Porphyry, which has a lovely purple hue, green serpentine, and Istrian limestone, which often has a yellow or golden hue. Combined with red and yellow marble from surrounding Italian city-states and sovereign areas, the Palazzo Dario was a reflection of Venice itself. Expensive, beautiful, exotic. A privileged place in the world at large. And if the Palazzo Dario seemed like a reflection of Venice itself, it's even more accurate to say that it directly represented the man who gave it his name, Giovanni Dario. What's really curious is that we don't know a ton about Giovanni Dario, but we know enough that we're able to set some bare-bones details down on the table. We know that Dario was a merchant, and also held positions as a secretary and a notary to the Senate of the Venetian Republic. So he had excellent political ties and was most likely well paid for his enviable positions. At one point in 1484, he was sent as an envoy of the Venetian government who had been embroiled in a brutal war, several actually, for quite some time. And for his efforts, Dario was apparently rewarded with this prime plot of land on the Grand Canal by the Venetian government, 
both as a show of their appreciation for his efforts and as a very public celebration of a victory of diplomacy with the Turks. Perhaps it was this pride in his achievement that inspired Dario to hire the architect, long assumed to be the Venetian master Pietro Lombardo, though this has been disputed, to design a palace that showcased this particular East-meets-West Venetian Gothic style. Or perhaps it was just the popular architectural style of the day, or maybe both. But one thing is certain. The building was a glorification of Giovanni Dario and even bears an inscription on its facade that attests to his importance. Urbis Genio Ioannis Darius, which is Latin, I think, for Giovanni Dario, genius of the city, or patron of the city. The palazzo, then, was Dario, and Dario was his palazzo. Oh, remember that inscription, because we're going to come back to it shortly. But we're not here today to talk about the gorgeous architecture and a long-dead wealthy Venetian, are we? No. We are here to talk about the dark rumors that have swirled around this stately palace for centuries, ever since the early 16th century, and one that some believe extends even into our own, the 21st. And that's coming up next, right after a quick check-in with today's sponsors. Stay with us. I love the feeling of learning something new, and that's what I get every time I watch or listen to The Great Courses Plus. This streaming service is a must-have, and I have an incredible deal for my listeners. You can get a free trial, plus get 20% off when you sign up for their annual membership. But you have to go to my special URL to get this world of knowledge, which costs less than what most of us would pay on coffee each month. I recently enjoyed their course on the Guide to Birding in North America. I loved getting the background on all the biology of the birds, including the physical characteristics that make learning to identify them so much easier. And then all of the footage and discussion of particular species in my area, amazing. I loved it. With The Great Courses Plus, you'll get thousands of hours of fascinating content like this across hundreds of topics, like great discoveries in astronomy, or the rise of the Beatles, which is another personal recommendation of mine, or even how to invest, with access to video, audio, and guidebooks, and with new content added every month, you can watch or listen anytime, anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app. So don't miss out on my incredible deal. Remember, it's a free trial plus 20% off the price of the annual membership. Go now to thegreatcoursesplus.com art to get your free trial. And again, my listeners will also get 20% off the annual membership at thegreatcoursesplus.com art. Lots of things can make your workouts hard. Extra resistance, double speed, one more mile. Your socks shouldn't, though. And that's why Bombas Performance Socks are built to be nothing but comfortable and supportive. Bombas Performance Socks have taken all the amazing innovations that make Bombas the most comfortable socks you've ever worn and added their special Hextech Performance technology. 
Bombas Performance socks are stitched with special moisture-wicking yarn and temperature-regulating vents that allow cool air to flow in and prevent overheating. They also come with a pillow-like tab to save you from blisters, stay-up technology, a special arch-hugging system, and an extra layer of cushiony comfort on the bottom for the perfect amount of support. They also come in different styles for every sport, with specific design functions to help you optimize performance and keep you comfortable no matter what you are doing. I'm telling you for sure that all of the hype you've heard about Bombas is real. That little extra bit of padding has made a huge difference for my sore heels. And I feel better too, because as with all of their socks, for every pair that you buy, they donate a pair to someone in need. They have donated over 45 million pairs so far. So when my support of Bombas can also help others through their donation plan, I'm even more on board because everyone wins. And I want you to win too. Go to bombas.com slash artcurious today and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S, bombas.com slash artcurious for 20% off. Bombas.com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. It appears that the rumors of a purported cursedness of the Palazzo Dario started rather quickly after the death of Giovanni Dario in 1494. When he died, the Palazzo Dario passed into the hands of his daughter, Marietta, and she and her husband, Vincenzo Barbaro, moved in, or at least partially did, since they actually owned the palazzo that was literally next door. We must note that there's not a whole lot of detail about the lives of Marietta or Vincenzo, just as there's not a ton remaining about Marietta's father, Giovanni. But what we do know is that their marriage didn't end happily. Vincenzo, a wealthy merchant like his father-in-law, eventually went bankrupt and then was stabbed to death, though the details are a little bit spotty, of course. Marietta, distraught over both financial ruin and her husband's demise, was said to have taken her own life, throwing herself into the Grand Canal and drowning. Such tragedy apparently transferred forward to the next generation with their son, either named Vincenzo like his father or Giacomo, again, fuzzy details, being murdered by assassins in Crete. If it is true, if these three tragic and unnatural deaths did happen to the Dario slash Barbaro family, then that is a truly heavy burden. Occurrences that would make it hard for anyone, any familial survivors, to recover from. A grief that surely must have been unbearable and immense. And yet, some Venetians began wondering if it wasn't all a coincidence, but perhaps something more frightening. And that's when some enterprising Venetians took a second glance at that inscription on the facade of the Palazzo Dario. I'm not entirely sure whose idea it was, but potentially some really bored person determined that if you scrambled up all the letters in that facade inscription, then you end up with another really rather different Latin phrase sub ruina insidiosa genero, which is an ominous statement that roughly translates to I generate under an insidious ruin, essentially meaning that ruination, financial, physical, or both, was doomed to befall any owner or inhabitant of the Palazzo Dario. The Palazzo Dario, many began to whisper, had been cursed from the start. And there was the proof all along 
right there on the front of the building, carved eternally in stone. Of course, the house itself didn't play along with these stories of curses, at least not at first. After the death of Marietta and Vincenzo's son in the early to mid-16th century, the palazzo seemed to pass through the hands of various Barbaro family members, and nothing really happened. We basically know nothing about those who lived in the palazzo for nearly 300 years, nor do we know anything particularly about their deaths or any potential ruination, and suffice to say that by this time, all rumors of a supposed Dario curse had mostly been forgotten but not entirely forgotten. And when the Barbaro family ultimately opted to sell the palazzo in the early 19th century, allowing the building to leave the family's hands for the first time since Giovanni Dario had built it in the late 1400s, the supposed curse reared its ugly head again and again, inspiring Venetians to honor it with a new insidious nickname, the House That Kills. The first owner of the palazzo, post-Barbaro family, was a grandiose and wealthy Armenian merchant named Arbit Abdal, whose fortune was made in the jewelry business, selling extraordinary diamonds and rubies, and sometimes selling some rather convincing cut glass and pretending they were jewels. Abdal purchased the palazzo after the Barbaro family did a little sprucing up and some renovations, and Abdol was no doubt thrilled with his new stately home on the Grand Canal. And yet, things apparently took a turn for Abdal not long after he purchased Kadario. His fortune, many say, quickly evaporated, and Abdal found himself penniless. He sold the palazzo and died shortly after. And who knows if the jeweler's extravagant ways, or a poor bet, or any other element was at hand. For some, any logical explanation didn't matter. The curse, they say, was back. The tale of the palazzo's next owner has been greatly exaggerated, perhaps conflated with details from other purported victims of the curse and probably acts more as a morality tale for 19th century Italy's particular bugaboos. Arbit Abdal sold the palazzo in 1838 to an English scholar and historian named Rodden Brown, who had been living in Venice since 1833 to study Italian history and its potential relationship to English history. Here's where the story gets tricky. The rumors have it that within four years of purchasing the palazzo, Brown was in complete financial ruin, like his predecessor. Even worse, he was apparently discovered to be gay, which led to society-wide ostracism and, eventually, to a murder-suicide in the palace in 1842, when Brown killed his lover and then himself. The curse! The curse has claimed more financial ruin and two more lives. Except this one, for sure, is not true. It's accurate to say that Rodden Brown did indeed find himself in more dire financial straits after purchasing the palazzo than before, simply because he undertook almost a complete overhauling of the interior of the palazzo, renovating it even more than the Barbaro family had done. And to be fair, the palazzo had been standing for almost 400 years at that particular point on Venice's notoriously unstable silt. So, you know, it probably needed a complete overhaul. 
that probably cost a really pretty penny. And Brown did end up selling the palazzo four years after he bought it, but most likely did so at a profit due to all those upgrades. And there was no murder-suicide here. Brown remained in Venice, moving to a different palazzo in the early 1850s, and he died there peacefully in 1883, at the respectable age of 77. And it was also alongside Brown that a major figure of 19th century art history and art criticism, the Englishman John Ruskin, came to admire the Palazzo Dario, a sign of things to come in the remaining years of the 19th century and the early ones of the 20th. Ruskin was one of those most prominent art writers and critics in the Victorian era, and, if I do say so myself, kind of a snack in his younger years. He was fascinated with Venice and its architecture particularly the colors of the stones used from the Byzantine era forwards, and he found the Palazzo Dario's oculi to be particularly splendid. Exacting drawings of the Palazzo's facade survive that speak to Ruskin's interest, where he wrote of the oculi, quote, Brighter hues were opposed by bands of deeper color, generally alternate russet and green in the archivolts, and by circular discs of green serpentine and porphyry, unquote. And the aesthetic interest in the palazzo only grew as the 19th century progressed into the 20th. Coming up next, the Palazzo Dario brings inspiration and some pretty famous works of art. And, oh yeah, more death and supposed devastation. Stay with us. So you are the hiring expert for your company, and what you really need is help making your short list of quality candidates. You need a hiring partner who makes your life easier. You need Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview, all on Indeed. Get your qualified short list of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster, only pay for the candidates that meet must-have qualifications, and schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connecting with and hiring the right talent fast and easy with tools like Indeed Instant Match, which gives you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fits your job description immediately and Indeed skills tests that on average reduces hiring time by 27%. You can choose from more than 130 skills tests or add your own, then add your must-have requirements so you only pay for the applications that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. So if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash art. Remember, that's a $75 credit at indeed.com slash art. Indeed.com slash art. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. This episode of Art Curious is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
There have truly been times in my life where I've needed some assistance to figure out what I wanted from life and how to find the happiness I deserved. And that's why I turned to BetterHelp. And BetterHelp is here to help you too. With BetterHelp, a professional can assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist with whom you can begin communicating in less than 48 hours. And it is so convenient because you can connect from wherever you are in a safe and private online environment and you can message, call, or video chat with your therapist, all instead of commuting somewhere and sitting uncomfortably in a waiting room. And BetterHelp also makes it easy to find the right therapist for you. Whether you're looking for help with depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, LGBT matters, self-esteem, or anything, and you don't have to limit yourself to someone who works near your home. Believe me, I've used BetterHelp and it is so easy. And I loved my counselor I connected with. And even if I didn't, it would have been so easy and free to change counselors if I wanted. It's confidential, convenient, professional, and affordable. And financial aid is available. BetterHelp is not a crisis line or a self-help line. It is professional counseling done securely. And check this out. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. As an art curious listener, you're important to me. And so I want you to start living a happier life today. By visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp, you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling by visiting betterhelp.com slash artcurious. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's at betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. The Palazzo Dario switched hands a few times as the 20th century approached, with one of its most notable inhabitants being Isabelle Combe, the Countess de la Blome Pluvinelle, a Belgian-born aristocrat and writer who was also known to host a salon of great artists and thinkers. After she also committed herself to several major renovations of the Palazzo, which included adding chimneys, a staircase, and further stabilization of the marble facade, she hosted a famed French poet, Henri de Regnier, for two years, from 1899 through 1901. And from all accounts, it was a lovely, peaceful, and productive stay for Regnier. No curse seems to have afflicted him there, nor to have followed him back from France. Instead, it brought him beauty and comfort, a place of solace during his Venetian sojourn. Even more famously, Caudario brought artistic inspiration to one of the biggest names in art at the beginning of the century, Claude Monet. In 1908, the 68-year-old father of Impressionism made a trip to Venice, the most serene city, and made 37 of his most famous paintings there, images where he sought to capture the light, the atmosphere, and the color of a city on water constantly changing with the tide's ebb and flow and the setting of the false sun. And he was taken with the Palazzo Dario, so much so that he painted it at least four times, all with that typical Monet mode of working where he came back to the same scene at different times of day in order to capture the differences brought about by lighting and atmospheric changes. He fell in love with Venice and made the Palazzo one of his 10 painting locales during his trip setting himself up at the mouth of the Grand Canal across from the Palazzo and translating his unique vision into oil and canvas. My enthusiasm for Venice has done nothing but grow, he wrote to a friend near the end of his vacation. 
and his fascination with painting the Palazzo Dario was a big part of that. In the almost 100 years between Arbit Abdal's supposed financial ruin from the curse and Monet's loving renditions of its exterior, Cadario mostly just continued being a building. But the curse was simply lying dormant, some declared, just waiting for its next victim. And, according to legend, the next one was Charles Briggs, an American millionaire who purchased the palazzo at some point in the early to mid-20th century. And this time there is another gay panic story attached, one that, again, I can't seem to verify, about Briggs being discovered as a homosexual and basically ostracized, forced to leave Italy and relocate to Mexico, where his lover committed suicide, some say, from the shame of the whole experience. It's super reminiscent of the same tales told incorrectly about Rod and Brown, perpetuated time and time again online. And it's a reminder that once you start looking into the rumors about Caudario, you'll soon realize a lot of the reported details are just plain wrong. Like the story about Rod and Brown, which I've even found reiterated on Venetian tour websites and in physical guidebooks about the city. And some even add more deaths and disaster to the already full curse. Like one guidebook that listed the death of Henri de Regnier, that poet who lived in the Palazzo from 1899 to 1901, as having died there shortly after moving in, which is patently false. De Regnier died in Paris in 1936. But it is proof of something that we've spoken about before on this podcast especially as it pertains to the stories and tall tales about people like Vincent van Gogh, that we love to perpetuate these myths because they are fun. They entertain us. Truly, as we have seen with de Regnier, Monet, Ruskin, and others, not everyone who has come into contact with Ka Dario has had a bad go of it. William Denby, an African-American writer who spent part of the late 1940s writing his most beloved work, Beetle Creek at the Palazzo. While there, he noted, quote, I wrote the novel while I was in foreign cities. I was in Salzburg, in Rome, but suddenly it all came together in a palace in Venice. And the first thing I know is that I had finished a novel, unquote. In some ways, the Palazzo was a place of inspiration for Demby, the place where his thoughts coalesced and his book, his baby, finally came into being. Even though there are a lot of tall tales when it comes to the supposed curse of the Palazzo Dario, that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't grains of truth to them, too. Both can coexist. And in the case of several individuals who came into orbit with the Palazzo Dario in the second half of the 20th century, that definitely seems to be the case. In 1963 or 1964, dates do seem to vary depending on the account, after the palazzo had sat empty for several years, a famous Italian opera singer named Mario Del Monaco began official negotiations to purchase the property. But something awful happened. On his way to Venice to attend to these real estate matters, he was in a terrible car crash, sustaining severe injuries that some believe may have curtailed his career, if not his life. Legend has it that in the ambulance, as he was being transported away for medical care, the singer shouted to his secretary, quote, destroy those papers, unquote, referring, they say, to the purchase agreement for the Palazzo Dario. 
the sale was canceled. In comparison to the palazzo's next owner, some believe that Mario Del Monaco actually got off easy. After all, he didn't end up moving into the palazzo, and he made it out alive. The same cannot be said for Count Filippo Giordano della Lance, who died in the palazzo in the 1970s when he was killed by a Croatian sailor named Raul Blasic, who was probably the Count's lover. And then Raul, who fled to London after he killed the Count, was murdered there soon after. To many Venetians, it was a sign. The curse was coming back with a vengeance, and the Palazzo Dario would, no doubt, strike again. The purported tragedies so closely tied to the Palazzo were said to have continued with its next owner, the British record producer and manager of one of my favorite rock bands, The Who, Kit Lambert. Lambert, at the height of his wealth due to The Who's successes, purchased the Palazzo, having lived there part-time while maintaining another home in London. Friends and associates noted that part of what fascinated Lambert was actually the supposed curse, as he was drawn to the dark, romantic vision of living and owning a house of ill omen. Not that he necessarily believed in the curse, mind you, but it is interesting to note that he often suggested that friends stay in a nearby hotel when they visited, just in case. And because he was A, a dude in the rock world, and B, because it was the 70s, Lambert played a lot of that darkness out in a dual obsession with drugs and with spending money, both of which would eventually lead him to becoming a ward of the Court of Protection in Britain, which allowed him a small living stipend in exchange for removal of a drug possession charge and potential prison sentences. Financial ruin, some whispered. It's the curse again. A whisper that grew even stronger into a near scream when Kit Lambert died of a cerebral hemorrhage after a fall down the stairs in 1981. He fell down a stairway in London, mind you, not at the Palazzo Dario. But no matter, the curse can capture you anywhere and everywhere. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, and even into the early 2000s, these trends continued. A Venetian businessman moved in only to soon, of course, fall into financial ruin and to lose a sister to a devastating car crash. Another Italian owner was caught up in a very public financial scandal that ended with his apparent suicide in Milan in 1993. And then Kit Lambert's old friend, the Who's bass player, John Entwistle, died of a heart attack a week after purportedly renting the Palazzo Dario while on a Venetian vacation in 2002. Never mind that he already had a pre-existing heart condition, was an intense smoker, and was using cocaine on the night of his death. But even all of that, that was supposedly brought along by the curse, all from just renting the Palazzo. So it shouldn't be a surprise then to know that some potential sales of the building have fallen through possibly because of concerns over the curse. Most famously, none other than director Woody Allen attempted to buy the Palazzo before backing out, and some believe that it was due to the curse that he threw in the towel. Today, the building is privately owned. Some sources say it's an American corporation of some kind, though it hasn't been confirmed, 
and it is typically close to the public, though the nearby Peggy Guggenheim collection does occasionally use it for particularly large special exhibitions. And, from what I've heard, no one seems to have gone bankrupt or lost their lives while art-gazing in and around the palazzo. When you listen back on this story, it's helpful to note that since the time of its original owner, Giovanni Dario, only one person that we've discussed today actually died within the palace's walls, Count Filippo Giordano della Lance. Everyone else was away from the building when their tragedies befell them, even Marietta, Dario's daughter, who supposedly drowned in the Grand Canal. And let me remind you again that many of the details about those cursed had been exaggerated, confused, or potentially even just made up. And yet there are many, and we can count lots of Venetians in this lot, who believe that the curse is true, that Ca Dario houses malevolent spirits, perhaps Giovanni Dario's, perhaps those who had been previously buried on the site in a Templar cemetery from a thousand years ago, or even that the house itself is a malevolent being, insistent on bringing death and dismay to all who enter. Or, it's all a strange coincidence linking together with the smallest of breadcrumbs to form the semblance of a true story. Whatever is really going on with the Palazzo Dario, the folklore surrounding it seems fitting somehow, as a legacy of this mysterious and one-of-a-kind city. A reminder that even La Serenissima, the most serene city, as Venice is sometimes called, has its very sharp edges and dark shadows. And I don't know about you, but that little frisson of fear that accompanied me as I slid past the palazzo on a water taxi one night, that's enough to keep me interested in this beautiful, if strange, Venetian palace. But perhaps I should just keep my interest to myself and enjoy the palazzo's beautiful facade at a distance. Coming up next time, it's a twisty tale of a tragic death, a grieving husband, an American Beaux-Arts sculptor, a Union Army general, and an unsolicited reproduction of a famed memorial that soon spooked the heck out of Americans in the early 20th century. We'll get into that story in just two weeks. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Jordan McDonough. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Our podcast services are provided by our friends at Kabunki. Subscribe now to their new show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies, hosted by Josh Dassel, and visit subgenrepodcast.com for more details. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means that you can donate tax-free to Art Curious to show your support and to personally help our show get bigger and better. To find donation links and for more details about our show, including this episode's reading list, transcript, and more, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. 
We are also on Twitter and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. If you are not already signed up for our email newsletter, sign up now on the website and check back with us in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and strangely wonderful with potentially cursed artifacts and art in art history.